Welcome to episode 150, good round number for the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today by uh, our interview guests. Uh, we're going to have, you know, they say there's no surer way to kill a news story than to put the headline on it, uh, Worthwhile Canadian Initiative. Uh, but uh, we are actually going to be interviewing uh, two uh, uh, Canadians about worthwhile initiatives north of the border on privacy and security. Uh, we'll have uh, Dominic Roshan, uh, uh, who's the Deputy Chief of Policy and Communications at CSE, which is uh, the Canadian uh, security establishment and uh, the equivalent of our national security agency. And Patricia Kasim, uh, who's the uh, Senior General Counsel and Director General in the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada. Um, also on the program, uh, uh, Alan Cohn, uh, formerly head of strategy for DHS and number two in charge of uh, policy at DHS, uh, now of counsel to Steptoe. Uh, Jennifer Quinn Barabinoff, a skilled litigator and chair of our firm's class action practice, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. So let's jump in. Uh, Judge Robart in Seattle is making lots of news these days uh, um, because he uh, blocked uh, implementation on a nationwide level, uh, uh, scale of the president's uh, executive order on immigration. Uh, uh, but uh, I, uh, he's followed that up, uh, kind of determined to do the judicial equivalent of the full Ginsburg uh, with a pretty wide-ranging order uh, uh, or uh, opinion talking about whether it violates the First or Fourth or Fourth Amendment to impose gag orders on third parties who get uh, 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 criminal justice and national security requests to produce data within their hands. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of uh, sort of fitting my sense of his uh, immigration order, which was that it was uh, not all that uh, careful, uh, but absolutely determined about the result it was going to achieve. Uh, I thought this order, uh, and I don't know if, Alan, if you looked at it, but this order uh, um, <clears throat> says, yeah, there's a First Amendment problem with the gag orders, uh, and he goes through with this endless analysis, which never quite actually lands on any one thing. It's a uh, uh, it's a prior restraint. It's content uh, based uh, uh, communication restriction. Uh, it's overbroad. It's all bad. Uh, it, it basically is what he says, or at least uh, is sufficiently bad uh, so that the case. Um, survives a motion to dismiss. Uh, um, not the most persuasive, in my view, because most of the objections people have um, uh, here, or that Microsoft has, is that it's uh, it's saying oh, we should be able to get a ruling that says all uh, this policy is bad, even though you know if there are gag orders, they'll be imposed on Microsoft and can be contested. Individually, uh, and he never really comes fully to grips with the idea that maybe the better solution here would be for uh, Microsoft to pick the 
cases where it wants to speak and ask for a ruling. But of course, Microsoft doesn't want that because they would rather have a broad ruling in principle rather than a uh, uh, individual ruling on, on particular cases. Uh, so, uh, Judge Robarts, uh, one more and you will get the full Judicial Ginsburg, uh, making, uh, news across the board. Uh, uh, speaking of news across the board, the FTC has gone after Vizio in a privacy settlement that I think the actual, uh, um, uh, uh, taking of data, uh, without consent was a couple of years old. But, uh, uh, the FTC settled this case and it's, Odd. It kind of has the feel of a settlement they were trying to arrive at before the change of administrations and didn't quite make, and they nonetheless decided to uh, uh, to enter into the settlement despite the change in administration. So it seems. Uh, but so the 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 settlement uh, is for two point two million dollars to the FTC and to the New Jersey Attorney General. Um, the practices that were at issue were collecting information about people's, uh, the shows they were watching and how long they were watching them, not uh, obtaining adequate consent for that, and then moving on and selling that data to third parties. So if you think that the stuff you watch on TV these days isn't having the data about every minute uh, recorded, uh, you found a service that I'm not aware of. I mean, uh, 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 this, this data is so valuable to, uh, the networks and the people who make the shows and the advertisers that it's going to get collected and it's going to get it collected in great detail. And if Vizio is paying for the, this, my bet is their solution in the long run is going to be to just Get the consent and then gather it all. Right, and then it comes to the next thing, right? You know, how many how many pints of Ben and Jerry's you consume is is next on the list, right? Of things people want to know about. So um, I, I I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if they can tell that by listening to, to your lip smacking as you consume it, <laughs> right? Or just looking at you for evidence afterwards, I guess. Um, but in Vizio's case, uh, what was interesting about the decision was that uh, Chairman Olhausen uh, issued a special concurrence in the uh, approving the settlement. She had no issue with the count of the complaint that related to deception. She mm-hmm. agreed that there was not adequate consent obtained, but she did question in the premise that this information about what people were watching on their TVs was sensitive personal information, particularly compared to uh, prior uh, rulings in that area by, and uh, enforcement actions by the FTC, which had focused really on um, financial information, health information, social security uh, information, and that kind of thing. And she signaled that that was something that they would be taking well, a closer she, look at in the future. She must have missed that series of um, articles in which people uh, complained that their TiVo thought they were gay. Uh, <laughs> they, 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 it kept suggesting more gay-themed movies for them to watch, uh, and they were trying to figure out, what do I have to watch so that this this will stop, right? right. Uh, uh, how many John Wayne Westerns? Or maybe that's the wrong thing to watch. There well, was, a, was an elaborate... Maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe Chairman Olhausen is just watching dutiful uh, Fox News 24-7. Maybe so. Uh, uh, okay. Um, so speaking of Fox News, uh, uh, the uh, uh, this is going to um, endear the Trump administration to uh, to Fox News. Uh, uh, DHS Secretary Kelly has said, uh, uh, you know, we ought to get. Uh, 
uh, social media information from folks who come to this country. Um, what's interesting about this, and I predict this will be completely forgotten within a month, is that uh, uh, this is an initiative that was begun uh, by the Obama administration, which collects uh, this information gets waivers from um, uh, refugee applicants and has already begun asking for uh, visa waiver participants to volunteer their social media identities. Uh, uh, Alan, um, was this in the works when you were at DHS? Well, I think it's important to distinguish between what was done uh, in the wake of San Bernardino and questions about the USCIS process and looking at social media, which focused on can can we have individuals disclose their social media media identifiers, their Twitter handles, their Facebook names, uh, so that uh, investigators can go take a look at uh, the posts and other things of that nature. And what General Kelly said, which is or Secretary Kelly said, which is uh, to require people to disclose their social media passwords. Um, and so th- that's kind of a step, a pretty dramatic step forward from what was proposed before. Certainly the idea of looking at social media um, has been on the table. Uh, it's, it's an issue of concern and it's an area where in today's world uh, investigators need to look. But there is a distinction between what's being, this what was discussed here in the House Homeland Security Committee meeting, uh, hearing and what was being discussed at the end of the last administration. Yeah, no, clearly it's a step beyond uh, a, a, a logical step, you might think, because asking people to volunteer their uh, um, social media um, public profiles just guarantees, or unless they're idiots, uh, they're just going to give you the uh, the most uh, uh, plain vanilla of uh, uh, social profiles, uh, and they'll save their um, enthusiastic jihadi crusading for stuff that is password protected and uh, small groups and things of that sort. Uh, so if you can't get into some of the uh, uh, stuff that people posted uh, uh, privately, you really aren't likely to find much that's going to change your mind about whether to let somebody in. Well, that that may be, but I think on the on the other hand, uh, if you require people to disclose their social media handles and they do not disclose a, a uh, an account or a handle uh, under which they are posting those types of messages, um, then you've made much easier the process of uh, either denying them entry or initiating process to uh, to focus on them because they violated the requirement to disclose. The other thing, though, is to remember that uh, a requirement like that is likely to be reciprocated uh, by at least some of the countries that, um, that you or I or others who might be very interested in this uh, would tend to uh, travel to ourselves. So we kind of have to make the calculation as to whether that's something we want to be required to disclose to foreign governments when we are traveling. Oh, uh, there's there there there's nothing in social media that I haven't uh, uh, made pretty much widely available. Uh, uh, and if I tried to keep it con- uh, confidential, I'm sure there are dozens of people who would 
take delight in making sure that it wasn't. So uh, I, I, I at least have, have crossed that Rubicon. I, you know, I have to say, especially in the countries that uh, uh, I think improperly have become controversial, right? Uh, uh, countries like Yemen and Afghanistan and Iran and Iraq uh, and Syria, where we are taking people in uh, and where the administration thinks that our vetting is not good enough. Uh, the administration's right. The vetting is, is miserable because you've got no way, even if you know who somebody is, you've got no way to know what they've done that might be controversial or uh, risky, uh, in the decision to admit them. Um, but they, that's because the governments have bad records or don't have records about what people are doing in uh, ungoverned portions of the country. Um, but even in ungoverned co- portions of the country, uh, everybody's got social media and lots of people are using it. And if you can get into the social media so that you can actually say, um, uh, is this guy who now wants to be admitted to the United States as a student, actually the guy who was calling for jihad uh, uh, three weeks ago uh, uh, on a Yemeni social media, you that would be enormously valuable. And finding a way to get at that uh, uh, would improve our vetting quite substantially. Well, I think that that's right. But I think we also have to, to keep in mind, we mentioned a couple of different uh, distinct types of activities. Number one, admitting people as refugees from certain countries versus admitting people on uh, student or other type of visas with longer term um, uh, ability to stay and work and, and do things versus people simply presenting themselves for entry, either who've gone through a visa process uh, or who are from visa waiver countries who are looking to come in for a short period of time uh, and typically return back out. And I think we have to make distinctions uh, across those processes as to what we think is the most appropriate thing to do. In each yeah, I, this is this is an actual hard policy issue. Uh, uh, deciding you're willing to do it is the first and most important decision, but there's a whole host of follow-on questions. So it's a little like uh, barring refugees from seven countries so that you can figure out what your policy should be. Uh, it feels like making that decision is the uh, the hard decision, uh, uh, and the rest is just, uh, you know, writing the executive order. But in fact, the details mattered there, and they would matter here a lot as well. Yeah, if only there were some kind of standing gathering of leaders and, and experts from the different agencies that focused on this where you could you could ask them and consult with them uh, in formulating something like that. Smart ass. Okay, yes. Uh, all right. Uh, speaking of which, the uh, Talon Manual, uh, uh, a, a gathering of uh, uh, self-appointed, uh, actually in some cases government-appointed uh, experts on international law of war and cyber uh, attacks, uh, um, the, that group has gotten together. It's a much broader group than produced Talon 1, uh, and they've now produced Talon 2.0. They've also broadened out what they're trying to cover to go beyond just uh, what is an act of war and what can I do during war, since we haven't actually had a cyber war that always seemed pretty uh, academic to what can you do if it's not a war? Uh, I continue to think that this is way premature to try to uh, nail these down, things down in, in norms and that uh, the price of being premature is that uh, 
three quarters of the time governments won't pay attention to them and the other quarter of the time it'll be the US or Israel and they will. I uh, and so bad idea probably uh but uh, uh I haven't read it because it's 60 bucks to get a copy. Uh, uh, I uh, will write, uh, read it, and we will get uh, uh, the folks, a couple of people who are intimately familiar with it, to come on the program sometime in the next month or two to give us a deep dive on Talon 2.0. Uh, what I want to ask... It's yep. interesting. It's interesting. I think that, that Talon 2.0 can probably also be read effectively, uh, given what you were saying, as... Something of a glimpse into what the future may look like, uh, less about necessarily having to lay down norms right now, um, but more about what are the types of things that we need to be thinking about and what would it mean uh, to address them. Uh, and in that way, it, it's probably a reason that's worth your 65. They, 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 they are telling us that they only wrote down black letter rules that everybody agreed on the uh the french and the germans and the americans and the israelis and the uh, uh chinese uh and you know I'm surprised they got a lot of black letter law out of that process. But then they wrote a whole lot of other stuff that is uh, minority views and yada yada. And I'm a law professor too. Don't forget me. Um, so I'm not sure um, whether the non-black letter law really has value as law, but maybe it does uh, spur further debate, uh, which is what I guess what you say about stuff that you don't agree with. Um, Alan, uh, the Trump administration is still working on its cybersecurity executive order. We've been hanging at the edge of the cliff uh, for that to be released. Uh, uh, at one point, it was 20 minutes away from being released and then pulled back. Uh, uh, and we've seen multiple drafts. The latest draft is... I would say a little less procedural and a little more. We know there are some things we have to do. Let's get started on a plan to do them, like uh, dealing with DDoS and uh, um, uh, grid security. Uh, um, uh, and I assume you've seen the leaked copies as well. Any thoughts about uh, uh, the draft? Well, I think this is definitely a place where a little bit of deliberation uh, and a little bit of extra time has resulted in a much better document and seemingly a, uh, a, a process that's gone ahead and included the folks that need to be at the table. Um, you know, you have five basic areas that the, the executive order is covering, the executive branch, cybersecurity, um, federal authorities and capabilities to support um, Section 9 entities. That's the critical infrastructure at greatest risk. It was specified back in Executive Order 13636 from 2013, uh, as you noted, a focus on things like uh, grid security, also on botnets, uh, and then deterrence options and internet freedom. I think it's 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 a big step forward from uh, where it was originally. Um, not only it's written better, but it's also clearer, and it, and it really begins to take on some of the things that uh, are important to do in this space. Uh, that focus on Section 9 entities and grid security, uh, botnets, for example, are really in, uh, a, a long overdue effort to put some risk-based prioritization to what do we need to actually do in this space. So one of the things I was struck by is uh, uh, considering that during the campaign, uh, there was a lot of talk about putting DOD in charge of this. Uh, at the end of the day, um, this order 
doesn't put DOD in charge of it. It gives DOD a big role in several of these studies, but uh, DHS is uh, more or less uh, uh, paired with uh, a DOD on practically all of it. Uh, I would have thought that uh, DHS should feel pretty good about that. I think that's right. I mean, DHS is pretty central to this executive order and to each of the activities underneath. You also see the inclusion not just of of the Defense Department, um, but the Commerce Department, OMB, some of the other uh, the other entities that have roles in this space and a, and a direction to actually go ahead and harmonize things with the NIST cybersecurity framework with FISMA uh, as it relates to executive branch cybersecurity. Um, and really do some of those things that people have known that we've needed to do, uh, but just haven't been able to get done, and where the Department of Homeland Security in particular has really tried to push and get things done, uh, but just has run up against a lack of authority and a lack of, of support in doing that with respect to uh, to other departments and agencies. So uh, uh, that's good news for General now Secretary Kelly and his chief of staff, uh, Kirsten Nielsen. Uh, uh, I would just offer, and you may have some views on this, uh, uh, as a cautionary tale, the Napolitano effect. Uh, uh, at the start of the Obama administration, she did a great job of selling DHS to the president uh, and got a lot of uh, – um, assignments to take the lead on stuff. And um, I got the impression that DHS did not perform all of those well and that uh, DHS's stock plummeted uh, uh, from the first year or two uh, uh, during the Obama administration. You, you share my view? Uh, I think there's, there's, I think there's some truth to that, and I think that it's important. I mean, the department has been on a on a growth trajectory. Um, you know, eight years is not a lot of time when it comes to uh, some of the departments and agencies, but it's a tremendous amount of time when it comes to to DHS. Uh, I think the department's more capable at this point, yep. but I think you're exactly right. The department has to perform against these tasks, and I would say it's not just a reflection on sec- on confidence in Secretary Kelly. Uh, and in Kirsten, but also I would think the role of Tom Bossert uh, up at the White House in advocating yep. for uh, for the involvement of the civilian agencies, for the leadership of the civilian agencies, for the allocation of these roles. But you're absolutely right. The department must execute and execute well. And in particular, DHS in particular must execute and execute well against these responsibilities that it's being given in the executive order. So good luck with that, because they're also supposed to be building the wall and uh, uh, ramping up interior enforcement of the immigration laws. Uh, um, this is... Uh, this is a big drain on the uh, attention and control span of the uh, uh, the secretary and the deputy secretary when we get one, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, it's going to be a tough first year, I think, uh, getting uh, uh, all of these priorities actually implemented against significant resistance uh, at a time when they don't have all their people in place. Well, and I think that's the key. I mean, I think that Secretary Kelly knows how to drive priorities, and I think Kirsten has, has shown the same. I think Elaine Duke will uh, will fill the role well as yep. the Deputy Secretary and knows how to, you know, multitask and work things on parallel processes. Uh, they have strong leadership, both, you know, at the acting level right now um, with respect to several of those agencies. 
they need to, number one, specify who's going to come and run cyber functions uh, for the department. And they really need to focus on, you know, is the department organized in the most uh, streamlined way to do this? Are the, the right people in place? Is it too many people, too many cooks in the soup? How can you streamline uh, those functions as much as possible? Uh, and then really charge them to go uh, and do, uh, you know, the true priority work uh, that's set out and that's expected back from the White House and the president. Yeah, that I, and and on the cyber side, I have no idea who they're going to end up with. Uh, that'll be important uh, uh, because it's a very big job and it's got to have somebody uh, who understands the technology uh, um, and understands bureaucracy. So it'll be uh, it'll be a real test who they who they're able to get. All right, um, a, a couple of short hits. Uh, Hal Martin, the guy who uh, uh, was um, sort of uh, playing bag lady with malware at uh, NSA, collecting uh, vast amounts of it, taking it home and, um, I don't know, uh, cackling over it, uh, one hopes, or possibly selling it off, uh, uh, is uh, uh, indicted. And uh, it looks as though this is much more serious than originally thought, and it was pretty serious. Uh, um, the Washington Post says he might have taken 75% of all the hacking tools that NSA uses, uh, which would be just a staggering blow to uh, uh, to NSA's morale. Uh, let's see. And, and speaking of which, the number two official, uh, Rick Leggett, is leaving. He says it's not politics, uh, that he wanted to leave because now that he is confident that uh, Admiral Rogers is going to stick around a while, he wants to make sure that there is not a uh, there's not multiple transitions at the top. So he's leaving. Uh, they've chosen a replacement uh, uh, and uh, that replacement will presumably stay on after uh, Admiral Rogers departs. Um, and um, Google is telling prominent journalists, including some who've been on this show, uh, that uh, state-sponsored hackers are trying to steal their passwords. I'm really disappointed. I don't know about you, uh, Alan, but I've never gotten one of those notices from Google, uh, uh, even though the, the PLA did um, open an account for me at Yahoo. Uh, uh, it makes me feel that maybe I, I haven't really broken into the inner circle. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, it's a, it's um, it's I guess it's a mark of uh, of pride to get the banner on the top of your. Uh, oh, I am absolutely confident that 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 these journalists are sitting there saying, "Did so and so make the list?" Uh, it, uh, it tends to be kind of a uh, looked looked like a fairly left of center set of journalists. So maybe they were looking for people that uh, uh, they thought were going to be uh, uh, attacking them over the DNC hack. But uh, Well, I was going to say, Julia Yaffe, Jonathan Chait, Ezra Klein, Olbermann, uh, Brian Stelter, David Sanger, Paul Krugman. I mean, this is a list you could have put together. <laughs> yes, that's right. So now we know who's on Putin's enemies list. <laughs> Okay, um, uh, let's turn now to our interview with uh, Dominic Rochon and uh, Patricia Kasim. 
Okay, so our guests today uh, are two Canadian officials uh, with responsibilities for security, national security, and uh, privacy. Dominic Rochon, uh, uh, Dom, uh, is the Deputy for Policy and Communications uh, at CSE, uh, uh, and uh, CSE, the Communications Security Establishment, is essentially Canada's NSA. So, Dom, welcome. Thank you. Uh, and uh, 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 representing the privacy side of the discussion, Patricia Kasim, uh, who's the general counsel and the director general for policy at the Office of the Privacy Commissioner uh, of uh, Canada. Um, we don't have a privacy commissioner in the United States, as the European Commission is always happy to remind us, uh, but we uh, do have any number of chief privacy officers. So, uh, uh, Patricia, welcome. Thank you. All right. I, so I, the, I am, uh, we're all out uh, in Victoria, British Columbia to uh, uh, talk to an 18-year-old conference uh, uh, on privacy and security sponsored by the British Columbia government. It's one of the oldest privacy uh, um, uh, conferences on the West Coast. Uh, uh, and I love coming to Canada to talk about these issues because, in my experience, Canadians have a ringside seat in all of the U.S. political debates and can tell you uh, as much about U.S. politics as anybody in the United States. And then they have their own set of politics and political debates, uh, uh, which Americans know absolutely nothing about. Uh, and uh, so having a chance to talk about uh, uh, privacy and security issues in Canada uh, really provides a completely different perspective on the, some of the the debates we've been having in the U.S. So I thought it would be good to ask what's happening on privacy and security here in Canada. And let me start out. Uh, 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 the Prime Minister, uh, uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, ran on a platform of tinkering with uh, uh, the uh, national security laws uh, that were adopted uh, by the conservative government. Uh, uh, and there's lots and lots of ferment around what that means. No final decisions have been made. Uh, but the privacy commissioners of Canada um, have put out a statement on lawful access to encryption that says technical solutions which might support discrete lawfully authorized access to specific specific encrypted devices as opposed to general legislative requirements is the way to go uh, uh, and calling for an open dialogue with the technical community uh, on uh, how uh, uh, to get information that has been encrypted uh, um, and suggesting that uh, extraordinary measures to get encrypted data decrypted uh, should be a last resort. Uh, and Patricia, let me start with you because, um, frankly, I cannot imagine any privacy group in the United States putting out a statement that nuanced about uh, access to decrypted data. Um, in the U.S., uh, the privacy side of the debate is this is a human right and it's none of your business and companies should make their encryption as absolutely proof against law enforcement as they possibly can. Uh, that's not quite what I... I am hearing here. Uh, does that mean the debate is, in fact, um, leaning toward the possibility of saying there should be some authority to order decryption uh, when law enforcement or national security requires it? Uh, well, actually, we. Um, I'll start your 
your question or addressing your question by just explaining a little bit of what we have already in Canada. Mm -hmm. we, we haven't had an Apple FBI showdown equivalent here. Um, and maybe in part because we have certain things that perhaps are, are working already as it is. Uh, in uh, 2015, there was a bill that was adopted into law protecting Canadians from Online Crime Act. And in that bill, and, uh, among a, n a number of uh, new judicial authorizations that were introduced, was uh, an assistance order mm -hmm. that can accompany any search warrant, intersection order, production order, or other form of electronic surveillance. And basically, these re compel the named person to help give effect to right. the warrant. Okay. And they actually have been used. Uh, in investigations to defeat security features or compelled decryption keys in certain circumstances. So that already exists. In addition, um, for, for a number of years at the federal level, as a condition for federal licensing, yeah. telecommunications companies, carriers have to build in certain capacity of surveillance, uh, retention of communication metadata, and provide decrypted content to government upon request, of course, with judicial authorization and uh, judicial order. So these things already exist okay. to the extent that, and, and the, therefore, the privacy commissioners came out resoundingly saying, we don't think that there you should need be to do more. a law, uh, either a ban on encryption, uh, or a legislated backdoor, and the legislation is not the way to go. We have mechanisms that, for until we learn otherwise, appear to be uh, working. And so, but I, I do think that you know, from what you described, uh, the Canadian legal situation is more pro law enforcement right now than uh, the U.S. system in the sense that uh, um, there is a data retention requirement, uh, which in the U.S does not exist. Uh, uh, both countries have requirements for making it possible to conduct uh, intercepts, uh, wiretaps. Uh, uh, but uh, I think uh, uh, there's also a, an assistance order, and it's understood that an assistance order, I, I believe, would um, allow you to tell someone who has the ability to decrypt communication to do that. Yes. Okay. And okay. If, and and, and that, what's interesting about that is that's exactly what Apple was saying. We can decrypt it, but we choose not to, and we win anyway. Uh, and so that was never resolved in the U.S., but it's an arguable point that the, it might not be possible to force someone who has the ability to decrypt a communication to decrypt it. Let me let me ask uh, bring Dom into the conversation. Um, data retention. Um, Almost impossible to imagine in the U.S. climate the idea that we would uh, uh, force companies to keep uh, uh, data so that uh, it would be possible to conduct investigations more carefully, although the, se the Section 215 uh, uh, solution that we arrived at has an element of that. At least it imagines that retention is going to occur pretty uh, uh, substantially. Um, how long do people, do, do companies hold data, uh, telecommunications companies hold data uh, under data retention requirements? So I guess I'll have to throw in a disclaimer here stating that this is very much um, 
This is this is domestic, the RCMP's this is, this is territory. This domestic law, right? Public safety, right, okay. RCMP. Uh, Put on your flat brim hat. Right. And, <laughs> so, so all that to say, uh, I'm not I'm not as up to speed with with where the law is, and, and frankly, I think it's still very much being debated now. I think telecommunications okay. companies have. Um, certainly been uh, pushing back, and I'm not sure whether we've actually put in place regulations yet for telecommunications companies that stipulate exactly how long and um, how accessible this information needs to be. So the law has been passed, but I think it's still fairly new, and in terms of how it's going to be implemented, I think there's still debates that are happening in that space. Unfortunately, I'm not an expert with regard to to things that are happening domestically, given that we're a foreign signals intelligence agency. Um, I will say that from a... From a um, you know, part of part B of our mandate under the National Defense Act is to actually protect systems of importance to the government of Canada. So encryption is actually something that's very near and dear to our hearts. Yes. And well, actually, let me let me jump in on that. Sure. I, 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 that's also an obligation of the National Security Agency to protect um, uh, computer networks. But the National Security Agency has a much narrower. Uh, uh, Jurisdiction, they they can protect national security uh, systems, intelligence systems, DOD systems. But if you're talking about uh, social welfare payments or uh, uh, driver's licenses or anything uh, that relates to the non-defense, non-intelligence parts of the government, uh, uh, that responsibility has been given to the Department of Homeland Security and not to NSA um, for very political policy reasons. Uh, it sounds as though Canada's come to a rather different conclusion about how to handle network security. Absolutely. Um, I would say, and the the degrees to which we protect information can vary. I mean, obviously, the, the most obvious one is, is uh, defending networks against cyber attacks. Right. So if mm-hmm. someone wants to get a hold of um, you, you know, you're doing your tax uh, taxes online, they want to get a hold of your tax information or um, you're you're doing your you register for your health card online. They want to get your health information. Um, so we uh, CSC helps with regard to the defensive networks, and that's been made a lot easier uh, more recently because of Shared Services Canada, where we have one department within the government of Canada that consolidates uh, all of the uh, networks. So we went from well, that's another good idea we haven't followed. <laughs> so we've had 43 networks down to one network. Uh, we we don't have every single department and agency on the secure channels yet. I think we're up to 90 departments that are there. But nevertheless, we're we're protecting the networks, which is which is step one. Uh, step two is providing advice and guidance to all of the CIOs of all of the different uh, departments and agencies, so that they can actually practice. Um, good cyber hygiene. That is to say, they're following our top 10 list of yeah. just putting in patches. I mean, very simple things that mo- most people don't do. But then even beyond that, we actually help with regard to encryption when it comes to encrypting uh, sensitive information. Just recently, there was a privacy breach that CRA, um, our Canada Review Agency, um, lost uh, lost a particular file with a bunch of tax records in the Yukon. Mm-hmm. And uh, they reported this as a privacy breach, and it became uh, uh, news. I think it was just last week. Um, but the advantage was is that they actually stated we followed the encryption guidance as set by our organization. So CFC, it wasn't accessible. And so it's not accessible. So uh, there are different degrees of, of, um, of security that we're providing for various networks for government information. That so I think is let me let me ask Patricia that kind of drag her into this discussion. Um, there's been an enormous amount of privacy 
um, uh, hubbub around the network security role that NSA has played. The, uh, first, the idea that uh, NSA is a bad protector of civilian data because it's military or intelligence focused. Uh, that uh, uh, installing um, intrusion prevention systems, uh, which inspect incoming packets for malware, is potentially dangerous from a privacy uh, ground, even when it's done to protect um, uh, Canadian or, in my case, American government uh, uh, data. That information sharing in which uh, uh, the people who are defending the network talk to um, security agencies, security um, officers, chief information security officers, about the kinds of malware that they're seeing so that they can protect against those signatures coming into the government. All of those were deeply controversial from a privacy point of view. Did, 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 did any of those debates occur in Canada? No. no yeah, not, that's interesting. Not, uh, not, not the uh, NSA equivalent that uh, yeah. you seem to be describing. And yeah. They- well, they weren't all NSA things. There was just this fight over uh, uh, getting access to what uh, uh, about information sharing was about whether any government agency should be allowed to have uh, uh, participate in information sharing. And so it was a, uh, it, and it's 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 odd. It's just that, that that's a that's a whole realm of American privacy debate. I think it mostly. It was a bad idea to have those debates or to think that there was a privacy reason not to allow information sharing. Well, but it is a, uh, uh, it's striking that well, it, let you me, didn't let have me, it. Let me take it up as okay. a, a level of generality then. Yes. If you're talking about general information mm-hmm. sharing between departments for national security purposes, right. then uh, at that level I can tell you that is at the core of the most problematic aspect for us of Bill C-51, which was adopted into law, and that's the SCISA section that allows for information sharing uh, between now several government departments for um, in, uh, with respect to information that's related to national security mandates. So, um, and this has unprecedented level of government information sharing, where bef- now any government department can, if it considers it relevant to the national security mandate of 17 designated departments Mm -hmm. or agencies can disclose personal information to those 17 designated uh, agencies. And and we have taken um, quite a strong stance against that unprecedented level of government sharing in different in several respects. First, the threshold, Mm -hmm. which allows this information sharing. Uh, is at a threshold that our commissioners have found too low. It's basically if the information is relevant, right. whereas uh, the commissioners are of the view that it should be a higher threshold of necessary and proportionate. Or, alternatively, if, to be reasonable, the department or agency that thinks it may be are relevant but can't really determine with certainty whether it's necessary or proportionate like the recipient institution can that has the national security mandate, then at least the receiving institution should be held to that higher threshold. And if it does, it's not necessary or proportionate to their mandate, 
then they should either destroy or return the information. So that's 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 a, a one of the major issues. Another is around uh, the lack of clear obligations and clarity around retention and destruction, destruction mm-hmm. uh, obligations uh, that uh, we've called be much more explicit. And this we've is sort of national security information, not just... This is all just, national okay. security information. We've also uh, called for information sharing agreements to guide the sharing between, not for each transactional discrete piece of data, but generally to guide information sharing between uh, various departments in respect of certain types of data, and that those information sharing agreements have certain legally mandated terms, like what's the personal information involved, what's the person, uh, the purposes, uh, what, uh, restrictions on any secondary use or onward transfer, provisions around safeguards, retention, etc., and that we as an office should be consulted on those information sharing agreements. Uh, we also called for privacy impact assessments to be done uh, with this new level of sharing. And in fact, we've reviewed an, uh, several organizations since the law has come into effect. And we have found, surprisingly, that very few actually have undertaken privacy impact assessments. And this came as a stark surprise and disappointment uh, to our commissioner. So we, also, we, we have, you know, the, in the U.S. there are privacy impact assessments. Different agencies have been more or less enthusiastic about them. DHS did a lot of them. Uh, I always found them very useful if you wanted to understand a program, right? Yes. Because they look, the, the impact assessment has to tell you why are we doing stuff with data uh, before it tells you what uh, uh, the agency is doing with the data. Um, and so as a quick cheat sheet on what does this program actually do, they're, they're, they're useful. Uh, whether that's worth all of the agony associated with drafting them up is a yeah. different question. Yes, I hear that. Uh, it's also an incredible risk mitigating uh, effort as well, because by identifying, anticipating those risks, then you can take the proactive measures to mitigate them. Um, in, in addition to all of that that we took issue with uh, in the bill, which is, as, I, as, as Dominic mentioned, being reviewed, um, one of the things that we also called for is better accountability and uh, better uh, accountability right now of those 17 departments, mm-hmm. of which Dominic's department yep. is one, CSC, yep. only three have designated specialized expert review, and all the others uh, don't. Uh, have any expert review, um, and that is a concern to us. As a privacy commissioner, we have we can review privacy or personal information handling practices of all the departments, but there are um, 14 of those other departments, including others that aren't even on the designated list, that could benefit and should have designated expert review. So I, I want to uh, uh, talk a little bit about um, the the review or the oversight that CSE gets, because I think that's uh, it's interesting from a, a U.S. point of view, because it is in, in many ways very similar and in some ways very different from what the U.S. does. Uh, um, it, the uh, CSE has a slightly different mandate, although Frankly, it is my observation that Five Eyes has sort of forced the, the the sharing of information among Five Eyes has kind of forced everybody into much the same posture and much the same um, set of concepts. Uh, uh, because if if one of the agencies had very different uh, uh, rules, uh, sharing would become almost impossible. Uh, uh, 
But in the U.S., most of the oversight, putting aside the intelligence committees, is done by the FISA courts in the context of what is meant to be judicial review either of individual warrants or of minimization rules that accompany those. Uh, and I, I think it's fair to say that in the U.S. that very almost um, uh, ministerial act, is there enough evidence here or not, uh, has turned into a much broader ranging review of the activities of the agency in which the FISA court judges feel quite comfortable saying, you know, you could do this. I'm not saying it's illegal to do it the way you're doing it, but you could do a lot better job of private protecting privacy if you did six other things. Or I'd like to see this in the next application. And the agencies just salute uh, and and do it. Uh, um, but it, that feels increasingly, as you read the opinions of the FISA court, as though they are really acting as a kind of special master supervising the agencies as opposed to doing just judicial review or performing a judicial function. And the solution, uh, with this long wind-up, uh, the solution that Canada has chosen is to say, yeah, we'd like to have a judge think about this, but not a sitting judge purporting to act as a judge, but instead a well-respected jurist who will have actual executive master authority. Yeah. Can, can you explain exactly how that goes? I can try. Uh, that was a great uh, sort of introductory um, overview. And obviously the, the concept of oversight or review is something that, that's being debated in all, all the Five Eyes countries. Uh, I will point out that we have had a commissioner, so we, we have a model that I would describe as expert review. Uh, and that's been in place since 1996. So it's been quite some time mm-hmm. now that we've, that we've been working with this model. Uh, what it is, is we have a, a retired or supernumerary judge. So essentially someone who is formerly a federal court judge. In some instances, we had Supreme Court justices. Uh, even one former chief Supreme Court justice that served as our commissioner. Mm-hmm. So not just anybody, yeah. people that, that have presided over the most preeminent courts of our land that have landed as commissioners to overview our activities. So I clerked for Justice Stevens, uh, who is uh, still available for this uh, job by, and who was... Uh, in fact, a signator in his early career. He he broke uh, uh, codes uh, out of Pearl Harbor for all of World War II. And we only found out about this because uh, after I got the job as NSA's general counsel, he took me to lunch and said, well, you know, I swore uh, an oath never to disclose this to anyone, but given your job, I guess I can tell you about the, what I did. And so then I got, uh, I, I, I went to the historian, uh, and, uh, we got his service declassified. Uh, um, so uh, you'd be surprised. Lewis Powell, uh, carried around, uh, Enigma decrypts as part of his job, uh, in World War II. So, so surprising amount of expertise in well, former exactly. judges. So, so we've had, uh, this model where we have a retired judge. Now, the, um, the oversight they provide, they are only part-time. So uh, we get criticized often not to say, well, what can a part-time judge really know with regard to, to um, reviewing the activities of an agency that is 2,200 people wide? Um, that being said, the judge has, uh, or the retired judge has an office of 10 to 12 experts. And those experts then can be recruited from uh, IT backgrounds and what have you. 
um, judicial privacy backgrounds. And what they do is they're embedded within our organization. They have access to anything. They have powers of subpoena. Mm -hmm. They have access to absolutely anything that they want to look at. And, um, and therefore, through their uh, expert work, they report up to the judge. And the judge ultimately then uh, reviews us for compliance with the law. Interesting. So I, I, let me just briefly say that that's a sensible thing. The judges would want to have somebody who is more focused than they are on this. And my, it is my observation, though I've never uh, spent too much time talking to people uh, in the FISA court, that they do exactly that. Uh, but they pretend that the people who are doing that are their law clerks. Uh, but in fact, the law clerks last for many years uh, and have uh, well-developed views about what's good and bad at the agencies and uh, exercise a lot of discretion in bringing issues to the FISA court judges. Uh, again, it's a sensible thing. Uh, it's just not sensible as a judicial function. It's much more sensible the way you do it, which is to say, Let's have the uh, uh, somebody acknowledge that he's designated experts who are going to learn about particular parts of the uh, the agency. Just a couple of uh, points to add uh, on the on the issue of accountability. Of course, th mm -hmm. this model does not exist for many of the other departments who, and agencies that have increasingly important roles in national in national security. So. Um, that's one of the things that we called for is expert review over some of those other departments and agencies. And it may be of interest to your listeners that uh, recently there is uh, a bill in Parliament now to create a, a, a review committee of parliamentarians mm -hmm. uh, that would look at national security and intelligence and have a, a, a review function so would this, be, would this be would this be all party or would it be the all party? So the, the the one good thing about well, that's not the one good thing, but it, one good thing about the U.S. system of having uh, intelligence committees is that uh, um, the opposition is always part of that review and. Uh, as we increasingly have deep partisan suspicions about whoever's in party in power, then the other half of the country thinks they're, um, uh, you know, about to engage in martial law. Uh, it's helpful to have both parties review that, or in uh, the case of Canada, all four parties. Three, three, uh, and uh, I, but that does mean that you can get some pretty fringe views, uh, and you have do have to worry pretty. Um, thoughtfully about uh, maintaining the security of the data. Yeah, and, and those are some of the... I mean, certainly it, it, it enhances uh, democratic accountability. You're mm -hmm. absolutely right. And some of the details about the information that the committee members should have access to, yes. what level of information they can disclose in public reports, um, and to enhance transparency is all... Being dis d discussed right now in, in terms of, in the context of re the review of this bill. But it was a, an electoral promise of this government, and uh, it seems that that is one of the things uh, that they moved very quickly on. And uh, so the bill is, is making its way along. So that's interesting. So that means process. the liberals are actually saying, uh, in order to redeem this promise, we're going to bring the conservatives in and tell them what we're doing, give them insight into what the intelligence agencies are doing today. Yes. And I think, uh, you know, as Patricia pointed out, I think it's I think it's a good thing, um, but it's not uh, a simple thing in terms of uh, 
providing access to sensitive information to not just parliamentarians, but they're going to have to have clerks as well, yes. secretariats that are going to help them. Uh, you're going to have to uh, devise a way to get them up to speed on some very technical aspects and things. Um, but that being said, uh, the, under the current system, we have uh, parliamentary committees on national security and defense uh, that certainly invite uh, members of my organization or members of our, our uh, human uh, intelligence uh, CSIS or RCMP to have discussions, but they never really get into classified information. And so uh, the argument would be that how knowledgeable can uh, some of our political masters really be, uh, and even parliamentarians even more so. Uh, maybe the, the governing body might have some, some insights, but not, not parliamentarians as a whole. So the concept of this committee of parliamentarians, I think, is, is being welcomed by everyone. The devil will be in the detail in terms of how it's all being set up, and I think that's why it's taking a little bit longer to um, to pass through Parliament. So I, when I when I counted four, I was thinking conservatives, liberals, NDP, and Bloc Québécois. Did Bloc Québécois get completely wiped out in the last election? Wow. I believe so. We wow. do have. I do. We still have a, a sitting member of the Green Party. Oh yes. Um, okay. But uh, and soon you'll have some party status. Yeah. I think it's on. Yeah. Yeah. And soon, soon you'll have the Pirate Party represented. Indeed. I'm sure. <laughs> right. uh, okay. So there's uh, there's one topic I I can't finish this uh, interview without raising because it is um, being billed as Canada's version of the right to be forgotten, which I can barely uh, articulate without uh, um, uh, uh, sneering, uh, but I, uh, there's a case, Globe 24, in which the uh, Canadian Supreme Court said something about uh, being able to forget some kinds of information, but uh, it's nothing like what the European Court of Justice did, but all that's about as much as I know. Patricia, can you uh, illuminate what Globe 24 did? Yes. First of all, it wasn't a Supreme Court decision. Ah. It's a federal court decision at first instance. Oh, okay. And, oh, so uh, we're going to see an appeal of this. Well, so. maybe not, because the, uh, the respondent here um, never showed up to the Court uh, proceedings. Oh, these are the guys this in is, Romania or someplace, is, yes. right? So and and they, yes. okay. And so we may not see an appeal. So yeah, this yeah. may stand okay. for a while. Um, but to clarify, for well, you, actually, the facts are fun yes. right? and and uh, and probably account for the jurisprudence. So what, what was it? the the this was a Romanian company that took a bunch of criminal conviction records from well, the, actually, uh, let me back up a second. In in Canada. Um, the the judiciary have devised a set of guidelines right. uh, on the publication of their decisions and the online publication of their decisions, and they live by this set of, of guidelines, but all the while holding fast to the open courts principle, of course, as a fundamental democratic principle. Um, but one of the... Uh, so they are available, but hard to get and hard to research well, they're online. they're available, but uh, they make them available to an organization, a not-for-profit called Kenley, mm -hmm. on the condition that Kenley makes them searchable on their website, but not, uh, but they cannot be searchable through a general search engine like Google okay. by name. Mm -hmm. So they use a robot exclusion protocol to, so that if I want to find out any dirt on Stuart Baker, I can't go to Google and print up. Stuart Baker, and then find out the revenge. Well, just just ask Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and so that's the compromise that was made. 
and that's the way it works. Uh, and and so these decisions are online and publicly available, um, but not searchable by name. Come uh, enter Globe 24 that finds an enterprising angle here and decides to upload and reproduce and republish everything on Canly on its own website, but without adhering to the robot exclusion protocol so that it is now, they are now uh, searchable through a general search engine uh, like Google or others. And of course, this is all very sensitive data. It's all levels of could be administrative uh, decisions of uh, and um, could be highly uh, sensitive information. So it wasn't. A, my memory was it was it was a little bit more of a scam than yes. that because uh, you might say, oh, well, information wants to be free, but they, they were willing to take it down if you paid them enough. Exactly. Right? So there was the scheme. Uh, they first of all they they made advertisement. Mm -hmm. uh, dollars out of this because they uh, they had advertisers who would post their advertisement um, near next to the uh, the decisions that people would search on their website so they were making a good uh, buck out of that for a while but mo what we took most issue with is that their scheme required individuals who wanted to take down decisions um, that uh, to pay mm -hmm. a hefty sum and this is what got the court uh, concerned because, and, 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 uh, the court essentially said, you know, th this isn't why these d decisions were made publicly available in the first place. This is not advancing the open courts principle. This is not advancing the administration of justice. In fact, if anything, it's harming the administration of justice because it's causing harm to people. And so what's the solution? Did they so order Globe 24 to, to take it down? So they ordered Globe 24 to take it down, which is the website. This is different than the uh, the European Court decision. It's right. not. It was never an order against Google right. to um, delink the, uh, the the reference. Uh, so it is not really uh, no, the equivalent of a right to because be it, in fact what was what was particularly galling was the hypocrisy of the European Court saying, "Oh, uh, European newspapers can leave this up as long as they want. Uh, it's only those Americans who are not allowed to." Uh, uh, make it available through uh, a reasonable search engine, you can still go to the website of the newspaper and uh, do your searches there. And, and the web and the newspaper website in that case was a lawful activity. Right. Nobody would take issue with that. Um, here, the website, the, the primary website, the first website was the one that was found to be offside the law and therefore had to take down this decision. So is there, now, presumably those search results are still available through Google for as long as um, and, and probably forever through the Wayback Machine, aren't they? Well, that's an interesting question, although um, one of the things that this decision helps us do now is go to Google and, and ask, ask them, them to say this, this was This was an unlawful disclosure of information, and, and we would yeah, appreciate like it. It would be for a, a case of um, a defamation or copyright infringement or where there's an actual illegal activity, I think Google and other search engines are much more amenable in those cases to uh, take down the... Well, they'd probably be uh, much more amenable if you asked as opposed to <laughs> asserted the authority because uh, uh, they don't really want to make any more uh, uh, right-to-be-forgotten law. 
Okay. All right. Uh, so I usually uh, uh, end these interviews by asking our participants if there are any public events that our listeners uh, that they'll be engaged in, uh, uh, papers they're releasing, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, major intelligence leaks that CSE is uh, <laughs> expecting. Uh, if there's anything that you'd like our listeners to be watching for. Well, actually, I, I do have one. We are in a, a major, uh, well, two major consultations at the moment. One is on this issue of reputation online. We've consulted uh, with stakeholders across the country to get submissions on how Canada should deal with the right to, to be forgotten. Um, and and so th- this is a position we will be coming out on uh, with. Uh, and, but the other consultation is around the... Uh, the existing model of consent that exists in our federal uh, laws, privacy law, on the private sector, and the uh, consultations about the ongoing viability, sustainability of a consent model, particularly in an age of big data, Internet of Things, artificial intelligence. So we have had uh, received written submissions. We've had stakeholder consultations across the country. This week, we are holding focus groups with individual Canadians across the country, and we will be coming back in the middle of this year with a position on how to ideally enhance consent through creative, uh, not only legal uh, policy means, but technological means. And in cases where it's really impracticable to obtain consent, what are some of the conditions or circumstances that may warrant uh, an exemption to consent? And uh, what are the, uh, the, what are the, the, what is the level of appropriate enforcement, which would be the quid pro quo of a consent exemption in certain circumstances. So if you solve that problem, I, yes. you know, you will be doing something that nobody else has been able to do. Certainly <laughs> part of a global discussion, a global challenge, and we're trying to do our little bit to advance the discussion. It reminds me a little of what I think Winston Churchill said about democracy, the worst possible form of government other than all the others, and consent may be, it's obviously flawed, but it's not clear that there's a better alternative. Uh, Dom, uh, anything, uh, uh, you're, you're probably hoping you make no news at all. Indeed, that, <laughs> that is usually my goal as, uh, as the Deputy Chief of uh, Policy and Communications. I will uh, say no, there are no, no books in, in my near future or we're not singing off of rooftops uh, the, um, some of the things that we're doing from a capabilities perspective, obviously. Um, but that being said, our government, I, I should say, your listeners are, are probably aware of this, but our government is involved in uh, national security consultations, which we had mentioned earlier in, in the podcast. There's a cybersecurity review that our government's involved in. There's a defense policy review. And all of these reviews, which involved uh, consultations across Canada, uh, they're all going to be landing sometime this year. And I think that's going to, uh, to serve us in good stead in terms of landing on some, some decisions going forward. It may require... Um, uh, amendments to uh, various acts, uh, maybe even uh, modernizing our legislation. Uh, we've uh, had uh, our National Defense Act in place since 2001, so uh, so stay tuned for those. So it's my observation that when there is a uh, Democrat in the White House and a conservative in Ottawa, uh, the two countries' governments are surprisingly in agreement on most issues, uh, and we 
have just the opposite now. Uh, so it will be entertaining uh, for those who are prepared to be entertained by uh, conflict and uh, miscommunication. It will be an entertaining few years. Uh, well, thank you to uh, Dominic Rochon and to Patricia Kasim. Uh, uh, it's been a very educational uh, dialogue. Thank, thank you very you, much. Stuart. Thank you very much. Thank you to Dominic Rochon, uh, to Patricia Kasim, uh, to Alan Cohn, to Jennifer Quinn Barabinoff. Uh, uh, as always, the Cyber Law Podcast is open to feedback. Send your questions, suggestions for interviews, uh, or topics uh, uh, to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com, or just leave us a good review and five stars on iTunes and other podcast aggregators so more people can find us. Uh, this has been episode 150 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We have an exciting 2017 coming up. Uh, we're hoping to get uh, um, a s- couple of CISOs to give us their take on RSA when I'm out there later this week. Uh, uh, we're going to get uh, Matt Tate, uh, the uh, CEO and founder of Capital Alpha Security, uh, uh, known as Pwn All the Things uh, on Twitter. Uh, we're going to get Kurt Dukes and Tony Sager, uh, who were in charge of the most sensitive security programs in the government uh, for cybersecurity to tell us what they tell their moms and their children when they ask how to secure their uh, uh, computers. So if you get that question a lot, uh, tune in for that one. Uh, we'll get the definitive answer from people who've already been put on the spot. Uh, Michael Daniel, uh, who was uh, the cyber czar in the Obama White House, has agreed to appear, as has Nick we- Weaver of the University of California. We've heard from him before. He's always entertaining. So Don't forget, if you've got a suggestion for a guest interviewee and they join us on the show, we will send you a highly coveted Stepto Cyber Law podcast mug complete with logo. Uh, We hope you'll join us um, uh, on all of those uh, uh, episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.